Well, uh, last week we began a new series, Fear, Faith, and the Future, and um, I got more responses to last week's message than I've gotten from uh, any message in a good long time, and uh, a variety of responses, some of them good, some of them inquisitive about what were you talking about, Pastor Jim? You know, my, my interest in this brief series of messages is is really to ask and then to provide answers from God's Word to the question, what must we do as followers of Jesus Christ in the world today, individually and as a believing community, to to persevere faithfully and obediently in the face of present and coming active opposition and increasing persecution in the United States um, the events surrounding COVID-19, um, the 2020 election cycle, uh, a sudden lurch leftward in our country towards Marxism and socialism, some radically extreme policy and legislation have awakened many American Christians again to thoughts about the soon return of Christ. Is this the time? COVID-19 seems to have been a catalyst of sorts for a shaking of the tree, a sifting of the church. Scholars who study and research the life and the mission of the church in our time are saying that many who have stopped attending church during the pandemic will not return when the opportunity for churches to be back in full operation without restriction is again available. And I wonder what will we conclude when the clouds clear and the masks finally come off and we're able to look back on the year 2020 and now 2021 with 2020 hindsight. I think that we will at least observe this, that that our country has changed. That the church, in fact, has changed that our personal lives obviously have changed and the relationships of all kinds have been altered. What will enable us then as those who claim the label Christian, claim that title, to endure faithfully to the end, either the ends of our lives or the end of the age when Christ returns, whichever comes first. A literal reading of the Bible reveals that the return of Christ for the church is imminent. But when we say that an event or a happening is imminent, what we mean is that it's ready to take place. For example, when when an expectant mother comes close to the full term of her pregnancy, we can say that her delivery is imminent. It's ready to take place. The stage is set, and as that day draws closer and closer, that expectant mother will often be heard to say, I'm so ready. From the perspective of biblical eschatology, which is the study of what the Bible has to say about the end times, the return of Jesus Christ for the church is imminent. There's nothing else that the Bible points to as needing to happen before Jesus comes for us. It could happen at any moment. It's important to clarify that to say that his return is imminent is neither to suggest nor to insist that it will happen immediately, but rather to insist on the basis of the promises of God's word, 
that each of us ought to live with the expectant realization that from God's perspective or the perspective of the New Testament writers, nothing stands in the way of it happening. One thing we know for sure from the pages of the New Testament is that Christ followers from the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven and right down to the present day have lived with the expectation that it could take place at any moment. His coming has been imminent since the day he ascended into heaven. Jesus repeatedly promised that he would come again. For example, in John 14, 1 to 3, in the upper room with his disciples, Jesus said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, I, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. As Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council on trial, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. On that last day Jesus had with his disciples before he ascended into heaven, we read in Acts 1, 9 to 11, as they were looking on, he, they meaning the disciples, he, the meaning Jesus, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, right? Wow. <laughs> as, as they're gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way, in the same way, in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus, who ascended bodily and visibly into heaven, will, will return bodily and visibly for the church. Revelation twenty two twenty in the final statement of Jesus and the entire Bible at the end of John's revelation, we read, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then we see that the Holy Spirit, speaking then through the New Testament writers, guarantees Christ's return. To the Philippians, Paul the Apostle wrote, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The writer of the Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in chapter 5, verses 7 to 8 of his letter, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So what I want you to understand, first of all, this morning and take to heart is that the rapture of the church is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. We don't know when it will occur. 
but we know on the basis of the promise of God that it will. In the time we have together this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time in each of three passages of Scripture. The first is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, which is one of two definitive texts on the rapture of the church. Follow along as I read. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The rapture of the church. By the, by the way, the word rapture comes to us from the Latin word raptura. It, it means to be seized by force, snatched up, carried away. And it reflects the, the significance of the two-word phrase in verse 17, caught up. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Of course, the New Testament wasn't written in Latin, was it, but in Greek. And the actual Greek word in verse 17, harpazo, means the very same thing. The believers in Thessalonica were concerned about the future of those who die or have died before Christ comes again. Again, verses 13 to 14, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Young Christians um, having serious questions about, okay, Jesus is coming again. My, My mom or my dad or... A loved one just passed away. What about them? Are are they going to be resurrected too? Fallen asleep is a euphemism for having died. Two verses later in verse 16, he refers to them as the dead in Christ. You know, the thought has occurred to me on many occasions, not just in relation to this passage of Scripture, but to other places where Paul had special knowledge, but Here Paul says that he possessed a word from the Lord regarding the rapture. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Paul had this by special revelation. And then when we overlay, and by the way, just one other thing before I I move on. Notice that in... uh, Where am I? Verse 17... Paul says, then we who are alive, who are left. Which tells us that Paul clearly expected that Jesus would come in his lifetime. He didn't insist on that, but it certainly was his anticipation. Then when we overlay what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth with what he wrote to the Thessalonian believers, we see this 
Same word from the Lord expressed. The themes are exactly the same. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. It's going to be loud and it's going to be sudden and we're going to be changed like that. How long is the twinkling of an eye? It's not the wink of an eye. It's the twinkling of an eye. It's a glimmer. Boom. And all who belong to Christ at the moment of the rapture will exit planet Earth instantly. Instantly. Living and dead will all be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And in that moment, will be changed. A fundamental transformation will take place. The bodies of those who have, who have perished will be raised imperishable. They will be fundamentally morphed. They will fundamentally be transformed. The perishable bodies of those who are alive at that moment will be exchanged for imperishable bodies. Our mortal bodies will put on immortality. What does that mean? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I am sure looking forward to finding out, aren't you? And from that point on, we will always be together and we will always be with the Lord. Some of you ought to be amening right now. See, our focus in, in this brief series of messages, again, is to ask and to explore answers to the question, what must we understand, what must we do as followers of Jesus in the world today, both individually and as a believing community, to persevere in faith and in obedience until Jesus comes. In Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 to 25, is contained a teaching of Jesus that someone at some time in the past labeled the Olivet Discourse. You won't find that phrase in the text of Scripture. If you have a study Bible, you might find it down in your footnotes. It was so named because the physical setting for what Jesus was teaching here is on the Mount of Olives. The teaching is in response to a specific question from the disciples. And so there's a conversation, there's a discourse. I'm guessing that it was probably named the Olivet Discourse by some academic in an ivory tower because they tend to like high-sounding words. In these two chapters, Jesus discloses to, to the disciples a prophetic overview of things to come. From that moment in history, right on through the tribulation period to the second advent of Christ and the final judgment, John MacArthur wrote that the Olivet Discourse contains two strong warnings First, that before Christ returns, the world will become more and more hostile to the people of God. And second, that Christians need to be prepared for His coming and the judgments that will follow. 
Well, let's look together at, at the portion that's found in the first 14 verses of Matthew 24, in which Jesus, the Son of God, describes conditions that will develop and exist in the world in the days that precede the rapture of the church. Follow along again as I read. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let me just pause right there and and let you know that in, in the year 70 A.D., that prophecy came to pass as the Roman emperor Titus came and laid siege to Jerusalem, conquered it, and leveled the temple in Jerusalem. Going on, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Notice with me that Jesus, in this conversation, in this teaching that he's giving to his disciples, had two concerns as he introduced the prophecy. First of all, that they not be led astray. They not be led astray. He says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And Jesus is saying, in effect, look, I'm telling you these things so that you will not be among the deceived. Secondly, his concern was that they not be alarmed, verse 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. This must take place. But the end is not yet. Alarming stuff is going to happen. I'm warning you now so that you won't be surprised, that you can make the intelligent choice not to be alarmed. Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind. That's, that's, a, that's a good way to live the Christian life. Begin with the end in mind. And then in verses 4 to 14, Jesus prophesies ten signs of the end of the age. And I'd like to just touch on each of those briefly. First, he says again that there will be false Christs. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You know, deceivers, uh, there's there's no shortage of deceivers in the world. And they have one father, the, the ultimate deceiver, the father of lies. Um, a Jewish rabbi, uh, Moshe Daniel Levine, wrote that a detailed account of all the false Jewish messiahs recorded in history could fill a book. And this precludes the mention of hundreds of claimants lost to the dustbin of history. While the setting and scope of each of these stories widely differ, 
They are united by failure and false hope, the vast majority causing death and destruction, loss of property, or conversion. Uh, I took some I took some time to do a little study of my own, and you, you can do this on Wikipedia. Just type in, you know, false Christs in history, false messiahs, and you'll find a long, long list. So suffice it to say that there have not only been false Jewish messiahs, but people of many, many national identities, many ethnicities down through history, even to the present age, who have claimed to be the Messiah or have been regarded by others as the Messiah. And as the rabbi wrote, when the false hope is realized as false, there's death and destruction, loss of property, Negative things happen. Secondly, Jesus says that there will be wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 6. Verse 7, international armed conflict. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Also in verse 7, natural disasters. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. You might be thinking right about now what I often think when I read verses 3 through 7, which is, okay, how much insight does it take to say all of that? False Christs? Yeah, okay. What about this other stuff? There have always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been armed conflict between peoples and nations. It doesn't take a genius to recognize that famines and earthquakes take place here and there. there. There have been lots of those in the history of the world. They'll continue to occur. So what? But those are just baseline for what Jesus is presenting here. Notice that he interrupts his rhythm at verse 8 and interjects this. All these, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is baseline phenomena. They're like Braxton Hicks contractions. You know, they're, they're the early signs in an expectant mom's body that her baby is growing, that the things are beginning to change, that real labor may be coming nevertheless or will be coming. Nevertheless, it's early. And, and now notice where he goes in verse 9, that there will be external persecution of the church. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The world's hostility to Christ and to Christians will not diminish in the days and years that lie ahead. They will just continue to increase exponentially. While Jesus and And other biblical writers taught that Christians will not experience the seven-year period that they called the Great Tribulation that will follow the rapture of the church when things will get much, much worse. They did not say that we will be exempt from trial and tribulation ourselves. Instead, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. You will face trial. You will face persecution. You may lose your life for my name. Here he says, they will deliver you up 
to tribulation and put you to death. And as we think about that, you know, we, we, we kind of need to come face to face with the truth that we Christians in America have been fortunate. For many Christians around the world, active overt persecution has been a daily reality for a long, long time. And so this prophecy of Jesus is being fulfilled right now in those places. Christians are giving up their lives even today in order to stay true to the name of Jesus. We might ask what will be the mechanisms that will trigger increasing persecutions in the United States. And that's maybe a discussion for another time, but it's certainly worth reflecting on. A quick glance at the climate of our nation suggests again that the stage is set, and increasingly so. In verse 10, Jesus says, just uh, identifies apostasy in the church. It says, and then many will fall away. Many will fall away. We see that happening in our time. Social science research has long suggested that Americans' relationship with religion, this is from uh, a blogger, uh, Daniel Cox. Social science research has long suggested that Americans' relationship with religion has a tidal, T-I-D-A-L, quality. People who are raised religious find themselves drifting away as young adults only to be drawn back in when they find spouses and begin to raise their own families. Some argue that young adults just hadn't yet been pulled back into the fold of organized religion, especially since they were hitting major milestones like marriage and parenthood later on. But now, but now, many millennials have spouses, children, and mortgages, and there's little evidence of a corresponding surge in religious interest. And then he adds, and if millennials don't return to religion and instead begin raising a new generation with no religious background, the gulf between religious and secular America may grow even deeper. And I hope you'll take those words to heart. I hope you'll reflect on those. Um, They're serious. I shared with you that uh, Marcy and I recently became grandparents, and uh, my son called me one day and he said, Dad, um, how do I raise my son now to follow Jesus? And and I loved the moment because I've been anticipating it for years. But I said to him, look, you know, first of all, you need to walk with God yourself, and, and your son needs to see you following Jesus. But I also said to him, you, you need to take him to church. That's, that's where the help is, isn't it? You know, we help each other raise up young people to follow Jesus. That's what the church is all about. But while apostasy may be revealed by an abandonment of church attendance, apostasy at its heart consists of a defection from essential Christian faith and doctrine. How how essential is it then that for those of us who wish to live lives of faithfulness to God, that we strengthen ourselves in the true faith? In verse 10, Jesus describes an internal implosion of the church. This, to me, is one of the most frightening things he says. He says, they will betray one another and hate one another, describing Christians. 
What's abundantly clear from the progression of Jesus' prophecy is that increasing persecution is going to have a corrosive, divisive effect on the unity of the church. During the first century, at a time when the early church was being actively and viciously persecuted by the Romans and others, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, make every effort, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. But even then, there were snitches, there were informants in the church. Division and betrayal will occur again in the days ahead. Will the informants be you? Will they be your children, your grandchildren? We need to think seriously about this. Verse 11, he goes on and says, There will be false teachers in the church. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And this is already happening in America. We know that there are a number of false cults in America, many of them homegrown and some that are quite large. But the list of pseudo-Christian prophets and false teachers in America seems to grow longer by the day. And what's amazing is that they have shown themselves to be false prophets because the prophecies that they have uttered have not come true. They're increasingly popular and they're increasingly wealthy as they teach a false Christianity that's being lapped up by millions of biblically illiterate, naive, and undiscerning believers today who are being led astray. Stakes are high. The implications are eternal. I thought from time to time about naming names, you know, kind of giving you a list of people. And and the Apostle Paul did that. He named names. He warned others to stay away from certain people. Maybe someday we should do that. In verse 12, Jesus says there will be increased lawlessness. Lawlessness will be increased. And the word Jesus used here that's translated lawlessness probably has at least two connotations. One is in relation to the, the laws of human governments. And I mentioned last week that we're, we are suffering in America a loss of the rule of law and we're witnessing the rise of anarchy in our nation. So flouting or manipulation of the law is one kind of lawlessness. It's self-evident. The second kind of lawlessness is an utter disregard for the law of God. That's revealed in his written and living word, which is the Bible. And again, let's be honest. Well, we all set aside the law of God in our daily lives, don't we? I mean, that's what sin is, right? It's, it's, it's a setting aside or a disregarding of what God has said ought to be true in our lives. But don't miss that one of the consequences of pervasive moral relativism in our nation, in our world, is, is hostility toward absolute truth claims and absolute law, especially of a moral and spiritual nature, the kind that the Bible makes over and over and over again. So as we identify ourselves with Christ, we can expect that hostility from the world. But at this point in his teaching, Jesus is saying that these dynamics will characterize the church itself in the days preceding his coming. Christians will be lawless. And we're going to talk next week about the necessity 
in in the goal of persevering in faithfulness and obedience to the end of living not by lies but by truth. But I want you to consider seriously whether there is among some Christians within the church today, meaning the church at large, yes, and our own local church as well, a willing compromise or even a complete setting aside of the laws of God with regard to some of the major moral issues of our time. People have left our church over those kinds of issues. Finally, Jesus said, number 10, cold-hearted Christians, cold toward one another. He says, the love of many will grow cold. Jesus said, you know, and you know this, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. He also said what I'm always reminding you of, that the ultimate authenticating mark of the Christian in the world as the world looks on at who we are and what we're all about is an active, observable, tangible, genuine love between Christians. Jesus said, by this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. The late Francis Schaeffer referred to this as the final apologetic, the final defense of our faith in the eyes of the watching world that we actually love one another. So that when our love for each other grows cold, our witness to the world ceases to exist. When our love for each other grows cold, the church ceases to exist. And don't miss the causative factor that Jesus cites for this cooling of godly affection between believers. He says it's lawlessness. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There's an essential link between our submissive obedience to the revealed word and will of God, even when it's inconvenient, even when it defies our own reasoning, and our capacity to render submissive godly love to one another. Obedience and love, obedience to God and to his word, and love in the church are inextricably linked with each other. My brothers and sisters, we will not survive the coming opposition and active persecution if we are willing to relinquish our faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord, if we habitually compromise our obedience to the truths of God's Word, and if we abandon our love for and our active commitment to one another. Jesus closes this teaching in Matthew 24, 1 through 14, with a promise, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end in verse 14 is the end of the church age, which will be punctuated by the rapture of the church. The one who endures to the end, whether the end of his life or the end of the age, will be saved. What I want you to understand as we look at this is this is not a salvation by works statement. 
The salvation referred to here is the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation. See, when we transfer our trust to Christ, we're saved from the penalty of our sin. As the Holy Spirit then takes up residence in our life, God continues to save us from the power of sin, the power that sin has all over us. We call that sanctification. But when Jesus comes, he will save us from the very presence of sin, which is what the rapture of the church accomplishes. We call that glorification. You may have heard the expression, once saved, always saved. And I, I happen to believe that that's true, that if, that if one is truly trusted in Christ, if they have in fact been born again, if they have been made a new creature, that's an irreversible status and an irreversible relationship. Once saved, always saved. Jesus says the ultimate evidence that we, in fact, have been saved is that we, in fact, endure to the end. How are we to endure? Let me, let me draw your attention to two more brief passages and then we're done. Go with me to 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. I just love this passage. It's a beautiful passage, one that each of us, I think, should put to memory. But I want you to see just two things very briefly. The verse is in verse 2, and it speaks to that transformation that will take place at the appearing of Jesus when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal. When we see Jesus, John says, in that moment, we will be fundamentally changed. And in that new condition, God's word repeatedly affirms, we will be translated into his presence. The second, John says, Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Theologians and Bible scholars have referred to the hope of Christ appearing as the purifying hope of the church. What does it mean that we should purify ourselves? Go with me to one final passage, Romans 13, 11 to 14. Besides this, Paul writes, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Three imperatives I want you to see here that give shape to the outline of this brief passage and give us insight into at least a part of what it means, what it might mean to purify ourselves in preparation for the coming of Jesus. The first is in verses 11 and 12. 
wake up, wake up, wakey, wakey. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. This is your alarm. This is your wake-up call. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. See, if Paul was referencing the passage of time and the nearness of their salvation in the first century, how much nearer today is the coming of Jesus now 2,000 years later? Wake up. When I was in... Uh, well, I was, I was young. Young. There was a band called the Five Man Electrical Band that had a, a song that was titled Signs, and part of the refrain said, Signs, signs, everywhere a sign. Can't you read the signs? And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Look, pay attention to the time. Look at the signs all around you. Second one is cast off, verses 12 and 13. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And this word translated cast off means to lay aside. It means to renounce. It's another way of talking about repentance of those sins that that we do in the dark, those that we like to keep in the dark so that we're not detected by others. And Paul says that to purify ourselves is to renounce those things, to cast off like a garment our secret sins. And the third is says, put on, verse 14, put on. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul often spoke of spiritual choices we need to make in terms of taking off one garment and putting on another. And in this passage, he calls us to to cast off the garment of sin and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. For some of us this morning, that choice to purify ourselves in response to the hope of the imminent appearing of Christ will mean that we make the decision to to trust in him for the very first time. See, uh, if you don't know Jesus and he doesn't know you when he comes, you're going to miss the boat. You're going to be left behind. So putting on the Lord Jesus Christ for you today perhaps means that now is the time to pay attention to the time, to pay attention to the signs, to heed the wake-up call, and transfer your trust to Jesus. What, is, what am I talking about when I say transferring your trust to Jesus? There, there are certain things that, that we kind of tend to depend on. We, 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 attend, we, we depend on our church attendance, maybe our church membership, maybe a baptism that took place at one time, maybe a prayer that we prayed at one time or another. We depend on our cleverness, our morality, our humanitarian efforts, all those things that we think somehow are going to stack up that will please God. And the Bible says that none of that matters. 
all the only the one and only thing that matters for your eternal salvation is that you have transferred your trust from all of that and put it only on Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you at the cross and if you haven't made that transfer of trust i invite you to today i urge you to today for those of us who have already trusted in Christ who know that we're saved To purify ourselves will mean, I think, that we wake up, that we understand what time it is. We quit kind of playing with the world. That we repent of sin and impurity that we have allowed to take hold in our lives. Attitudes and thought patterns and habits that, that we know are contrary to the will of God for us. And that we choose obedience. So today may be a day that we need to confess sin and repent of sin. So that we're ready when he comes and that we're not ashamed at his appearing. But we look up and our our faces are hopeful, our faces are radiant. I'm not at all suggesting, and then the Bible doesn't suggest that we can be sinless. The question is, have we trusted in Christ as our Savior? Are we living lives that reflect that decision, that reflect His Lordship in our lives? And there's repentance that needs to take place in each of our lives. There's repentance that needs to take place in my life, without a doubt. The one who has this hope in himself, John says, of the appearing of Jesus, purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessed hope that is ours, that one day you will come and take us home to the place that you have been preparing for us. We look forward to that day. Lord, may we be ready. May we be ready. May we have put our trust in the right person and built our lives on the right foundation. May each of us in this room and in my hearing. Long for, hope for, yearn for, hunger for, thirst for your coming and rejoice when it occurs. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.